Father God, I thank you this morning that you are a, a God who, who is with us through every, every step. That as we journey through life, we don't have to worry or question whether or not that we are alone, but that we have the confidence of knowing that you are with us always. So as we pause our, and quiet ourselves now, would you just, just speak to us through these pages? Teach us how to live more like Christ. Help us to live in the hope that you have for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Today is Father's Day. Uh, We've said that quite a bit. Happy Father's Day. But that that can bring about a lot of emotions for people. And I think that we would be remiss not to acknowledge that, that there may be some in this room this morning who don't have the fondest memories of childhood, maybe not the fondest memories of dad. There may be some who are still mourning the loss of a father. Others come into this day from maybe a single parent home where the concept of a father is just foreign, is unknown to you. So, this is a lot of emotions are wrapped up in days like this, but as we, as, as we all sit in this room together, And as we all talk together this morning, one thing that we do share, the the commonality that we can come around is that we all do have a loving heavenly Father who loves us unconditionally, and that's the reason that we come to give thanks. You see, even if you grew up without a father, you have a heavenly Father who loves you. We all have this heavenly Father who will stop at nothing to care for us and to provide for us and to give us love that is unfailing, unconditional, and unmatched. Now, I'm not going to alienate anyone this morning who has come today and teach you how to be a better dad or a better father or give you a blueprint for fatherhood because every family situation is different. And what I am going to do is share with you about our Heavenly Father and introduce you to His love and His promise and hopefully encourage you in your relationship with Him. And when we come to the end of our time together, just like every, every week, we're going to have a time for you to respond to, to God's Word, to respond to your Heavenly Father and this love that we're going to talk about. And it may be something that's foreign to you, and if you have a question, that's a time for you to come have that question answered. If you want us to pray with you, that's a time for that. If you have a decision that you want to make, then that's a time that you're going to come as we share on that later. Father's Day, as I said, brings a lot of emotions for us. My dad uh, did and does work hard. My father does. Uh, still works very hard. Uh, I know that my parents instilled in me an incredibly strong work ethic by the way that they live their lives, and uh, that work ethic is seen sometimes in my life as a mental disorder. I don't know why some people are shaking their heads over there, uh, but that's just who I am. Sometimes I work until I drop. Like, we know, people who know me well know at what point my crash is coming, And when my crash comes, there is no stopping it from coming. It's the way that I was raised, to work hard, to give all that I am to what I am doing. Not just for me, but for those that I am helping to benefit through through my efforts, through, through what I'm working on. It's just the way that I was raised. It's what my father instilled in me. My dad worked two jobs for most of my young life. Uh... My young life's behind me, that's why I say it that way. For my young life, he worked two jobs. He owned his own business. He was an auto mechanic for years. He still is. He still tinkers on the side. But then he also worked night shift and does work night shift at a polyethylene plant. And he's worked nights for 22 years. Uh, 
And he did that, and he will not move from that shift because that's the only way he gets to spend time with his family. They've tried to move him and promote him and put him on different shifts, and he says, if I do that, I won't see my family, so I'm going to stay right where I'm at. He says that he is, uh, he, he told me last night, I asked him how long he had worked there, and you'd have to know the humor in, in my grandfather, but my dad said he's worked there for 22 earth years. Um, I'm going to have to figure out what that means exactly, what an earth year is, but um, he, he's someone who's always put... Uh, put himself last and family or others first. But now as they're older, they're empty nesters, he's taking some time for himself, restoring his Mustang. Um, And I mentioned my dad because there was one thing that he promised us as we were growing up as kids. It was never something that was vocalized or put into words or said to us directly, but it was was evident in the way that he worked and the way that he loved us. And that is, he, he promised through his actions to always protect and to always provide. I will always protect you, and I will always provide for you. And that is even true for us, uh, his children, as we are older and as we're all out of the house. We can still see that he has that same promise that he communicates to us. I know that his promise is is true, and I know that it is steadfast. We live in a world of promises and a world of guarantees, and we're quick to make promises. And we're also really quick to break them, too, if we're honest. Very quick to break them. We're giving guarantees on products that we buy that if they don't work, uh, you'll get your money back or you're going to get a new product. Products promise that if you use them, you will get results. They promise this. If you use this, the pounds will just fall off of you. If you you use this cleaning product, the, the grease and the grime will disappear. If you use this toothpaste, your teeth will be so much whiter. And now they're telling you to use charcoal. That just seems wrong to me on your teeth to make them whiter. Smells will disappear. All kinds of promises that come with products. Promising is such a big deal to us, or at least the concept of it is, that we have, we have levels of promises, right? We have the pinky promise, right? The, the simplest of promises, or is it the simplest of promises? Kind of has a mafia undertone to it, because if you break the promise on your side, then guess what? I break your pinky, It's what the pinky promise means. It says if you don't hold to your end of the agreement, your pinky must be broken. We have the scout's honor. And if you were in scouts, you know what that is. You're stating that you will live a certain way, that you will promise to do the best, and that promise rests on your very character, who you are as a person. It's a verbal oath to hold ourselves to honorable standards in which the way that we live our lives. And then there's the ever-famous cross my heart and hope to die right? Uh, we, we, we get a little more serious with this kind of promise. It's, 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 it probably is merely just words for most of us and doesn't hold much meaning, but what we're saying is that the pain of a broken promise would be much worse than experiencing death. The pain of breaking this promise would be much worse than experiencing death. But then we, we add that little jab in there too sometimes of stick a needle in my eye, right? A little, little bit more pain, then there's the swear on my life. I swear on my life. I swear on my life. And this, this promise elevates us to a place uh, of our life on where we put our life on the line. We're saying, I promise, and, and I'm, I'm staking my life on my ability to uphold my end of this agreement. I would rather die before breaking my promise. Now, all of those promises are likely things that we have said as children, maybe even as adults. 
Maybe we even say them to our children now as we make agreements with them. But as we grow older, promises take on a whole new level of, of commitment because we learn as we mature and as we grow that promises will be broken. Some promises made to us will be broken. The gentleman's agreement has been replaced with contracts and promissory notes, right? We have legal documents. Now, we agree to terms that are to be upheld by both parties so that this contractual relationship can continue. There are clauses that state what, what takes place in the event that one party breaks their side of the agreement, and we sign a paper, and we enter into an agreement that is centered on expectations of what we can gain from the promise. And what I want to look with at, you, at with you today is a promise from God. And God's promises were called a special thing in Scripture. They were called covenants. He made a lot of covenants with man. Uh, some of them you may be familiar with. There's the, the uh, covenant with Abraham and the Davidic covenant that we're going to look at today. The covenants were a special kind of promise. Timothy Keller, in his book entitled Preaching, says this about covenants. It says that it is said to be a stunning blend of both law and love. It is a relationship much more intimate and loving than a mere legal contract could create, yet more enduring and binding than personal affection alone can make. A covenant is more intimate and loving than a mere contract and more binding and accountable than a mere relationship. It's a special kind of promise. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would personally make his name great. I will make your name great. I will make you the father of many nations. Genesis 17 tells us that they were, that his physical line on earth would be blessed, that, that, that all of the nations of earth would be blessed through Abraham. And this promise references Christ who would come from the physical line of Abraham. The Davidic covenant is what I want to look at with you this morning, and it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles or your, uh, your electronic device or whatever you're going to read on or the screen, it'll be up there. I want to tell you just a little bit about the difference between a contract, which we may be very familiar with, and a covenant, which is what God promises to us. In a contract, we state that we expect the other party, we expect the other party to give to us for us to give in return. I expect something from you in order to give something to you. But in a covenant, we are stating that we expect nothing at all for what we are willing to give. In a contract, we agree that if one party fails to uphold the agreement, that the other is free from obligation to the agreement, maybe with some penalty. But in a covenant, we state that if the other party fails, we still uphold our end of the agreement, regardless of the situation. A contract says that you have something that I want, and I am willing to give you this in return. But a covenant says, I have something that you need, and I am willing to give it to you for nothing. God's promises are covenants. And John Piper, the chancellor of the Bethlehem College and Seminary, says that when God makes a covenant, He's really revealing His own job description, and He's signing it. He's saying, this is how I will work for you with all of my heart and my soul and my strength. If you love me as I am, cleave to me and trust me and keep my word. When it comes to the promises of God, the one thing that I want, to take, I want you to take away today and to remember 
is that when it comes to God's promises, those don't rely on our ability, but on our obedience. And we're going to see that this morning as we read this text from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Well, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make your name, you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is a covenant that God has made with David. And the first thing I want to look at in this text and the first thing that we need to consider as we consider the Father's promise for us and as we live that out in our lives, we have to realize His presence. The section of Scripture that we just read through, this, this 17 verses, is what we call an oracle. It's a message that God gives uh, to, to Nathan, someone that is likely close to David, uh, it's a very common practice in the, in the culture of this day for kings to have the, a person close to them, a prophet that they can rely on, they can talk to. Early in the text, we see David responding to, to God's presence, which is the ark, which is outside of his palace, and he wants to act on it, and he seeks the approval of Nathan. And Nathan says, you do, do what you think you need to do. Respond to God how you think you need to respond. And David sat comfortably in the blessing that God had provided for him in this house of cedar. And he noticed that God was dwelling in a tent, and that's where the ark was housed. 
Uh, Upon experiencing God, David immediately wanted to do for God. And we sometimes want to do that as well. We see that God is blessing us. We want to do for Him. We want to produce. We want to build something. We want to be active. We want to please God with our busyness. And as we continue to read, though, we see that that's not what God wants at all. And here's what I hear God initially saying. I I hear Him saying, you know what? I have been moving and acting among you in this same fashion for how long? For how long have I been with you, guiding you and leading you, taking you through these battles? Why should it be any different now? I have never asked you to make me comfortable, but I have only asked that you make me proud with your obedience. And I think that sometimes we need to hear what God is saying to David through this promise, that sometimes we need to remember that God's promise doesn't rely on our ability, but on our obedience. God is saying to David that he need not worry about what he can do for God, but he only needs to respond to what God is about to do through David. In these 17 verses, there are over 15 references to what God will do. 17 verses, 15 references. And there is not one to what David has done by his own efforts. Not one reference. What David wants to do is to do something, something according to his will, but God says, that's not what I want. I don't want that. I want you to experience and live in my presence, which is something that cannot be housed. There are a couple of other places in Scripture where we see this happen, where people respond to God by wanting to do the transfiguration of Christ. Is one place where we see that in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is on a mountain with some of His disciples, and they're praying, and Christ's appearance begins to change, and He starts to radiate, and Moses and Elijah show up, and the disciples say, we need to build three shelters now. And then they hear a voice saying, that's not what you need to do. God let them know that what they must do is to listen. He says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. The disciples immediately wanted to take action in the presence of God. They wanted to do something. Well, that's how we show that that we love you. We do something for you. But that's not what God wants. He wanted them to listen. He wasn't relying on their their ability. Luke chapter 10, just one more chapter. Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha, and the account says that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha was distracted by all of the preparations. She was doing for Christ. She was making Him comfortable. Martha uh, went to Jesus, and she whined because Mary wasn't helping, and He needed to do something about it. You need to tell her to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen what is better. Many things are important, but really only one is necessary. She's picked what is best, and it will not be taken from her. Few things are needed for us to do in our relationship with God other than just being with Him and listening, being obedient, not not worrying about what we can do for Him because He doesn't rely on our ability to do for Him, but on our obedience to allow Him to do through us. We like to do for God instead of just sitting back and experiencing and listening. And I feel that sometimes we need to take our our cues from Christ's words Whenever he says uh, on the mountain, or whenever he says to, to Mary and Martha, he says, Mary's chosen what is best. 
She's listening. She's learning. She's growing. She's becoming familiar with me. And as God spoke to the disciples on the mountain, he says, just listen to my son. Listen to my son. Spend time with him. But we like to appear busy about our faith. That's how we feel like people know that we are spiritual whenever we are active, whenever we are moving, whenever we are producing. The challenge for us, this is a huge challenge for me, is to be still long enough to hear God. To be still long enough to hear God before I respond. We often like to move quicker than God does. We often move before God has moved at all. And we find ourselves missing out on his blessings. I mentioned that there are lots of references to the action of God in this text and not a lot about David and what he did to deserve the promise other than really being obedient. David is reminded, uh, starting back in the early verses, that, that, that God chose David. This is not something that David pursued on his own, the position that he was in. He was in a field tending sheep, and God took him from that. David did not, was not in pursuit of being king. But God went after him, and I think that sometimes we need to be reminded that as we live in God's promise for us, he's not going to choose us because we are qualified, but he's going to give us those abilities, and he's going to qualify us because he chooses us. I used to have a phrase that was written on uh, the wall in my office um, years ago, and this was before the nice fancy decals where you peeled the back off and you stuck it on the wall, and it was there, and it was all pretty, you know? This is when I, like, traced the letters out, colored them in with a Sharpie, you know, days of work to get this up on my wall. But it's from Corey Ten Boom, who, was, uh, who helped uh, in World War II help people escape the Holocaust. She, says, um, she said this. She said, it's not my ability. It's not my ability. But it's my response to God's ability that counts. It's not my ability. It's not about what I can do, but it's about responding to God's ability in me. And one way that we can be absolutely sure of God's promises in our lives is to to recognize His presence and respond. And we respond not by doing for God, but allowing God to do through us what we cannot do on our own. And secondly, we need to remember our journey. Verses 8 and 9 start out with a promise start out the promise, and they they remind David to look back at what God has done. It's a reminder of his faithfulness, that God, not David, is calling the shots, has been this whole time. I have saved you from these enemies. I have brought you to this place. David had every right to boast in himself as defeating all of these armies, but he never sought accolade. And God wanted David to remember where he had come from before this new promise was given. And this was God's way of saying, remember, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And this lesson really hits home for me pretty hard because I have a hard time accepting my role. A very difficult time. I have, uh, I've led worship in churches for years. I don't feel like I am qualified to, to do some of the things that I, that I do. But even in my early years of leading worship as a volunteer, I always felt that there was someone better Someone who could sing better, someone who could play better, someone who could facilitate discussion better, someone who could be a better leader. And a lot of my years in church were plagued by eventually being second to folks that met societal standards and educational expectations. Because that's what matters to our culture sometimes. But like I said, sometimes it doesn't really matter what you can do on your own, but what you will allow God to do through you. 
God said to David in those verses that it was, it was he who took David from the pasture, from the comfortable and the normal, and started him on a journey that was way bigger than himself. God is reminding David here that I have been with you wherever you have gone. Wherever you've gone, I was with you. And we need to be reminded of that, that God has placed us in situations for a reason and for a purpose. And it doesn't matter where you have come from. It matters where God has placed you and where he is taking you. And if there's one thing that I've learned over the years is that he will not only prepare you spiritually to lead where you are or to flourish where you are, but that he will also give you the physical and the mental capacity to continue on the journey. He will give you what you need if you follow him obediently. Walk with him, but that with part is what sometimes is hard for us. Walk with God. Walk in sync with God. God promises that he won't take us to an obstacle or start us on a journey and leave us alone. He says, I will be with you always. The book of Joshua tells us that. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? For the Lord your God is with you wherever it is that you go. That promise is true for us today because he does not rely on our ability but on our obedience. When it comes to second-guessing ourselves in the midst of God's promises, we need to look back and see where we've come from. We need to, to see the victories that God has brought us through so we can proceed with confidence and assurance into the promise that he has made. Now, this covenant with David was a little different than the other oracles in this period because it's unconditional. Many of the other covenants that we read about or the oracles of this day were conditional. Obligations and conditions were placed on them, but there are not any obligations or conditions here that outweigh the reward of the faithfulness of God. So what do we take away from this, lastly? What, what, how do we continue to live, our, our, live out our days in the promise of the Father? Well, this covenant was made with, that was made with David is, is full of the gospel story. It is full of the gospel story. And when we study the Bible, when we dissect Scripture together, it is imperative that we understand whatever we are studying in the totality of Scripture. We cannot take it and pull it apart and say, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with that because this is way back here in the Old Testament. Scripture has to be read holistically. This is one story. It's all connected. This Davidic covenant, this promise made to a king so many years ago is full of the promise of Christ, and we have to understand Scripture through those eyes. The entire Bible points to the redemption and the restoration of man. The entire Bible. And it's been happening since the beginning. God's Word is meant to be studied holistically. So when we read the Old Testament, we read it in light of the gospel story. So for us, that means that we are part of this story. We are part of this because we are part of the gospel story. We are His church. We are part of the gospel message. We are continuing to live it out. We are continuing to grow it as he works through us, and we become what God intends for us to be. When we consider the promise of the Father for us today, lastly, we need to recognize our hope. That's what we take from this. We recognize our hope. And here's what I feel is promised to us and what I feel this covenant means for us as we continue to live out the gospel of Christ. There's a divine lineage that we are promised. God tells David that he's going to raise up for him offspring to succeed him, and from that, from his own flesh and blood, this promise will continue. And we read about that lineage in, in Luke 
whenever we hear the announcement of the birth of Christ, who was born from the house and the line of David. Throughout generations, God was preparing the way for Jesus through David's house, through David's lineage. And I think that it's probably safe to say for us that we should not expect Christ to come from our lineage in the next few years, right? But I know that we are called sons and daughters of God. I know that we are part of His family. We are, we are the lineage. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, God's special possession, that we are called out of darkness into light that we may declare His praises. First Peter 2.9 says that. For us, I see that our lineage is also carried out in our influence, especially when it comes to our children, if you have them, or those that may, you may be close to at, at work or your close friends. How you will be remembered is best seen in the lives that are around you whenever you leave this earth. What do you want to impress on people the most, that you were accomplished, that you were a moral and upstanding citizen, or would you rather people see that you were a person who received grace repeatedly, that you loved God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? Our lineage and our influence is best seen in the lives that we leave behind, not in the life that we leave. It's best seen in the lives that we leave behind, not in the life that we leave. We also have to recognize the hope of an everlasting kingdom. And this is what we celebrate now. We're living it out. David sought to build a house for God, but God said, I don't want to be confined to a space because my kingdom is not about a facility. It's not about a building. It's not about walls. It's about people. God wanted to satisfy God per the cultural standards of that day was to build a temple for their God. He wanted to provide him a place of rest, put him on display. But God's plan is different than our cultural standards or our cultural expectations. Instead, he wants to be mobile, working, moving through his people. He doesn't want us to build him a temple. He wants us to be his temple, to live as his kingdom. We tend to attach church to a facility. And we can't do that. We want, to elaborate, we want elaborate facilities that are pristine, that are very well put together, that are spotless. We want to be fiscally responsible and invest God's money in sound business decisions to grow that money so we can do more with what God has given us. And I find it strange that we choose to invest God's money as if we can make it bigger than He already has and that we should probably really rely on Him more to supply exactly what we need and not worry about making it bigger on our own. The church is not about a facility or a bank account, but it's, it's about obedient surrender to the will of God and earnestly following that. It's about us collectively coming together and following hard after God. We, we are part of this promise. We are living proof of God's covenantal agreement with David. We are God's kingdom, and it's our responsibility to establish it and to allow Him to work through us to grow it with our obedience. And lastly, there's an eternal throne that we have the hope of. God doesn't promise David that his throne will last forever, that he will sit on the throne forever, but, but the throne of the one who is to come. The everlasting kingdom will be ruled by an eternal throne on which sits the Son of God. And there's some prophetic language here that points to the cross of Christ. We read of the flogging in these later verses that will come when he says that the rod of men will come upon them. He takes upon himself the punishment that, that we're all deserving of. He says that, 
that even though there is punishment, though, even though there is discipline, my love will never be taken away from him. And this is the unconditional love of God to Christ that we celebrate the same love. We celebrate the same love. Even though there is discipline, my love will not be taken from you. There, this is, this is, there's a language shift that happens in verse 13 where all things point to Jesus. All things point to the fulfillment of this covenant through Christ. Christ had the ability to establish a kingdom without enduring the cross. But that wasn't the Father's will. Instead, he gave himself over to the obedience side because God didn't want him to display his ability, but his obedience. One point of encouragement for us as we consider the promise of God in our lives is, is the fact that this, this covenant with David was established in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 comes before 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11 is where we find the story of David and Bathsheba. God's promise, God's covenant, God's unconditional guarantee was given to David before David whoopsed. I have a feeling God probably knew that was coming. But that's the kind of promise that we can expect from God too. That's the kind of promise that we have to live in. That's the hope that we have to cling to, that even when we fail, He never will. It's bigger than a pinky promise. It's bigger than sticking a needle in your eye. God knows that our abilities are not enough. He doesn't really need them anyway. He just longs for our obedience. And as I've thought about how to bring this home and how to help us to realize that that we need to live in His promise. I can remember a few conversations that people have told me have taken place throughout our church in the last few months that, that we tend to adopt this mentality that because we've messed up, God will not use us. I don't know why we, we think that way. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's the biggest lie you could ever tell yourself. God used some really messed up people. Really messed up people. The thing is, you have to acknowledge the fact that, hey, I'm really messed up, and I really need God. Newsflash. God knows you're going to fail. He knows that nothing that you do is going to surprise Him. He's aware, just like He knew that David was going to fail, but God was still true to His promise. God still clung tight to David. See, when we fail and when we fall, as harsh as it may sound to you, uh, that just means that we're living as sinners. That's what we do. We live as sinners. And that may sound bad, but you have an inability to live a sinless life. An inability. You cannot do it. However, we have the ability to be obedient and continue even when we have failed to love God with all that we have. And we can live as a people after the heart of God, just like David was a man after God's own heart. God's promise will always remain true. He will always be faithful. He will always uphold his covenant. We may face consequences. David faced consequences for his failure. But we will never be removed from the love and the grace of God unless we refuse it and we walk away. We will never be removed 
from the love of God. God's promise is sure even when we are not. Our actions do not surprise God. Each week we come together and we celebrate God's covenant with man. Through Christ, we call it communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. Christ's sacrifice, His death, His resurrection. They sealed this promise. They sealed this covenant that never again would we have to know separation from God. And it was signed for all time. There's nothing that can take it from you unless you flat out refuse it as we've said. And it's not based on your ability to do for God at all. But it's rooted in your obedient love for Him and your desire to love Him with your life. So we're going to celebrate the Father's promise now. A covenant that He has made with us to never leave us alone. To never take His love from us. To always give us hope every day. When we realize that God is near and we remember how He's acted in the past and when we recognize our hope for the future, we know that we are secure in Christ. We know that we have been led this entire time. And after we celebrate this morning, we're going to worship together some more. David responded to this promise, if you keep reading in 2 Samuel 7. He had a, re- a response to God of thanksgiving, of gratefulness. And during that time, that's, that's your time to come and make a decision or to be prayed for. And we, someone will meet you down front here to, to pray with you. You know, God doesn't, God doesn't expect perfection from you. He doesn't expect perfection from you by what you do for Him. He doesn't rely on your abilities, but on your obedience. He expects you to be perfect because you're found in, protected by, and provided for through Christ.